the first of these lectures about film classics, I looked at the history of 10 best films as cinema's version of the age-old business of establishing canons of excellence. For this, I took Sight and Sound's 10 yearly polls as a baseline. But I also pointed out that cinema has alternative processes of canon formation. Some are based on economic success, others on popularity, as voted by filmgoers. Now I'm turning to the question of how the canon might change, looking at efforts to shake or challenge that canon, which Sight and Sound and other cinephile magazines had built up since the 1950s. In fact, the challenges came quite soon, when the 1960s saw a generation of cinephiles emerge who'd grown up with school and college film societies. Indeed, they were often their organisers, and they had access to more than new mainstream releases through the growing networks of alternative commercial cinemas, some of these known as repertory cinemas, others catering for specialised tastes. An example would be the electric cinema on Portobello Road, which has survived, although in a very different form. Some of the films showed were B-movies and were revivals of great pictures, often in double bills. Other of these cinemas specialised in foreign or continental films, which were often more sexually explicit, even after censorship had been applied, than standard British and American productions. So it wasn't uncommon, if you wanted to see a new film by Ingmar Bergman, to have to visit a cinema catering for, shall we say, specialised tastes. And famously, the poster for Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver in 1976 would feature his anti-hero, Travis Bickle, against a background of such adult movie theatres around Times Square in New York. Which, of course, would also be where Scorsese himself and his generation of new directors saw many of the art house imports that inspired them. In Europe, too, some of the organisers of arts labs and co-ops were also would-be filmmakers and activists. And here you can see some of the founders of the London Filmmakers Co-op, including Steve Dwoskin, the avant-garde filmmaker in the foreground there. And one of these activists, David Curtis, has recently published um, a new history of the arts lab movement. It's a memoir, but it's also an invaluable history of that exciting time, which gave many artist filmmakers their first shows, and indeed artists in other fields, such as David Bowie. Now I'm going to profile two groupings of these activists through two of the many magazines that started during this period. One was Movie, started in 1961 by a group of recent Oxford graduates with a crusading zeal for, especially, popular American cinema. The other was a short-lived magazine, originally from Cambridge, called simply Cinema, which asked some of its contributors to make their 10 best lists in 1969. Let's start with Movie, which was strongly influenced by the French journal Cahiers du Cinéma. In its first issue in 1962, Movie published a diagram, they called it a histogram, ranking over 200 directors according to their aesthetic quality and talent. This became notorious for a number of reasons, not least its complete dismissal of almost all British filmmakers in favour of a range of Americans, some very little known indeed. 
There was also an article by one of the movie's founders, Victor Perkins, complaining about British cinema being completely rubbish compared with American and French filmmaking. Seven years later, a younger and more diverse group of cinephiles, although also all-male, published their 17 lists in what was billed as an all-American issue, with lists which were encouraged to be as eclectic as possible, ignoring the restrictions of established taste and fashionability. These lists were organised in two parts, Best Directors and Best Films, which allowed some latitude for contributors to include one-off discoveries. In my case, uh, I was a contributor, uh, for instance, Edmund Goulding's Nightmare Alley and Robert Rosson's The Hustler and Louis Malle's Le Feu Follet, films that I had seen uh, in very recent years. But otherwise, my own and many other contributors' lists reflected a mix of arthouse classics of the period by Bergman, Godard, Fellini, Buñuel, along with alternative choices from American cinema, notably, for instance, films by Sam Fuller, who had recently been the subject of a major retrospective in Edinburgh and also in London. Billy Wilder was present and Fritz Lang, who was being celebrated probably for both his German period and his later Hollywood career. Several of the contributors reflect radical alternatives to these feature film lists. David Curtis, mentioned earlier, named mainly American avant-garde filmmakers such as Stan Brakhage, Andy Warhol and Gregory Markopoulos. And he also included NASA space movies, which were obviously a feature of this late 60s period. And Peter Wallen, already a major influence on the study of film with his book, Signs and Meaning in Cinema, included computer, presumably meaning gesture towards the likelihood of computers being mobilised to make films. And remember, this was 1969, before anyone had a personal computer at their disposal. If we look at Cinema Magazine's pantheon, or averaged rankings, we find an intriguing mix of the vintage, the traditional, the relatively new, and the avant-garde, with the underground filmmaker Kenneth Anger and Valerian Borovchik, a Polish animator who had come to work in France. It's a very different pantheon from Sight and Sound, and from movie, and I think it offers an interesting anatomy of the taste which would shape the infant discipline of film studies. Here's an extract from one of the poetic short films by Kenneth Anger, which so excited many of the contributors to Cinema Magazine back in 1969, including myself. I'm 
There were other platforms offering canons at this time. In America, Andrews Arras produced an extraordinary mapping of the entire output of Hollywood up to the late 1960s in his The American Cinema, Directors and Directions, which he divided into ten ranks, ranging from a pantheon to subjects for further research, with some memorable categories in between, such as less than meets the eye and strained seriousness. Some of the most admired filmmakers of the era, admired at least by mainstream critics, were cut down to size by Saros's caustic judgments. And, of course, some hitherto little-known directors were promoted to dizzying heights. Who would have thought that the director of She Married Her Boss the former animator Gregory Lacava would rank far above David Lean, Stanley Kubrick, Billy Wilder or Joseph Mankiewicz, according to Sabras's ranking. There were also calls at this time to shun Hollywood completely and to look instead to the new radical cinemas of Latin America, which had emerged following the Cuban Revolution of 1959 or to look to the New York-based New American Cinema of Jonas Mekas and film artists such as Stan Brackage or Hollis Frampton. Both of these were the province of another British magazine, After Image, started in 1970, which continued intermittently until the end of the 90s. It was, indeed, a time of lists and of polemics, and here's a list from one of the polls by the influential French critic Jean Douchet, which shows just how critics of this period were struggling to accommodate very different traditions and discoveries within the straitjacket of a ten-best list. It was also a time of scrambling to see films that would never come to mainstream cinemas or to television, as the influential critic and theorist Peter Wallen recalled in a later essay entitled the canon. By the end of the 1970s, it would be fair to say that the scale of values represented by Sight and Sound's 10 best list 
was starting to reflect some of these new judgments. Here's the 1982 poll, and as you can see, although Orson Welles was represented twice by his first two films, there was a Hollywood musical, Singing in the Rain, Hitchcock's Vertigo, which would eventually come top of the Sight and Sound poll in 2012, and what was emerging as the favourite among John Ford's westerns, The Searchers. Five of these ten could be classed as Hollywood. The other five hailed from France, Italy, Japan and the Soviet Union. What we can see at work here is the process by which canons are shaped by a mass of different, often conflicting judgments, and how they move, slowly perhaps, over time. Of course, many things had changed outside this rather small world of judging films. The political upheaval of 1968 had produced a counterculture, which remained a force in cultural and academic life on both sides of the Atlantic. Feminism and campaigns to legalise fully homosexuality were underway during the 1970s. Film had also entered the academic curriculum during the 70s, with a range of colleges and universities starting to teach film criticism and history, although having a GCSE in film studies was still some distance in the future. Canons had become a hot issue, particularly in American university and intellectual life. In 1987, Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind took a stand against the various currents of liberalisation which had been underway for a decade or more, maintaining that these had dumbed down universities and lowered the quality of cultural and intellectual life. Protests were staged against Bloom and what he represented, demanding that his Western canon did indeed need to be replaced by a more diverse range of great works in university and college life. Western civilization was having to explain itself, and when Harold Bloom published his book in the 90s, uh, The uh, Western Canon, that generated a debate which is in many ways still continuing to this day. Did any of this have any impact on the film canon, even in the days before video publishing would expand the range of film history available to view and teach? I think there is evidence that new thinking about the history of cinema, which began in the 70s and 80s, did gradually start to change ideas about what matters in cinema, making it, in fact, one of the arenas where these issues were being argued out and demonstrated. So let's look at four areas where there has been a real shift of attitude. The role of women in cinema, on the screen, of ethnic minorities and of sexual dissidence and difference, and the question of films that come from outside the major centres of production. 1972 saw the, the first women's film event in Britain, and indeed in the world, held as part of the Edinburgh International Film Festival. This came after feminism had erupted into British consciousness through several events in 1970. The publication of Germaine Greer's a notorious bestseller, The Female Eunuch, and perhaps more importantly, the disruption of the Miss World contest by a group of feminists uh, in that same year. The women's event in Edinburgh received much less attention than either Greer's book or the Miss World protest, but it may have had a longer-term impact in cultural and filmic circles. 
The programme gathered together over 30 films directed by women, dating from the early 20s up to 1972 itself. And it demonstrated that there was a plausible 50-year lineage of filmmaking by women. Some of the films shown were controversial. Leni Riefenstahl, the German filmmaker, had long been demonised for her Nazi propaganda films, The Triumph of the Will and The Berlin Olympiad. But before that, she had directed mountain films like The Blue Light, which was shown in Edinburgh. And Leontine Sagan's Mention in Uniform, Women in Uniform, set in a girls' boarding school, had the undeserved reputation of being a notorious lesbian film. Here at last was a chance to actually see it and appreciate it. But there were many others, including films by Maya Deren, the American avant-gardist, Dorothy Arsner, who had worked in Hollywood, Vera Chitilova in Czechoslovakia, and Nelly Kaplan, working in France. Jane Arden's film, The Other Side of the Underneath, was the most recent and the first feature-length independent film directed by a woman in Britain. Some of what are now the best-known women's films, such as Chantal Ackerman's Jeanne Dielman and Agnes Varda's One Sings, The Other Doesn't, had yet to be made in 1972, but they would come soon after. And what the Edinburgh programme demonstrated was a largely unknown continuous history of women as directors. The later 1970s would see an upsurge of feminist filmmaking, criticism and theory, which remains vital today. But I think that 1972 programme had canonic implications. Here's an extract from one of the earliest discoveries, Germaine Dulac's La Souriante Madame Baudet, the smiling Madame Baudet, in which a tyrannised housewife dreams of revenge against her overbearing husband.
The role of ethnic minorities, specifically black filmmakers, would also start to become visible in the 1970s. If we consider just Britain, historically the first feature was Pressure, directed by the Trinidad-born Horace Ove, with funding from the British Film Institute in 1975. This is set among the Caribbean community uh, in Ladbrook Grove in West London. And the film actually includes a, a recreation of the street protests that were dramatised more recently in Steve McQueen's film Mangrove, part of his Small Axe series. Oh, just came down with some of guys there. Not usually down there. Didn't have anything to do with Ove's film had nothing like the exposure that McQueen's small axe was about to get uh, last year through television. 
But arguably, it set in train a realisation that British cinema was failing to represent a signif- significant aspects of British society. Menelik Shabazz made Burning an Illusion in 1981, quite a long interval. That's also set in Not- Notting Hill, but now places a black woman, played by Cassie McFarlane, at its centre as she reacts to police violence directed against her boyfriend. Black and Asian films have remained intermittent in Britain. And it's telling that much of Steve McQueen's success and recognition as a filmmaker has come actually from the films made in America. But the importance of self-representation had been recognised and would be supported by the great sociologist and cultural theorist Stuart Hall in his 1989 essay, New Ethnicities where he explained the importance of a series of black British films, such as The Passion of Remembrance, Hansworth Songs and My Beautiful Laundrette, which this last was written, although not directed, by a black filmmaker. Hall's argument was that these films demonstrated a refusal to represent the black experience in Britain as monolithic, self-contained, sexually stabilised and always right on. Here's a crucial, taboo-breaking moment in My Beautiful Laundrette. Timber's coming tomorrow morning, getting it cheap. I've had a vision of how our place can be. Why don't people like laundrettes? Because they're like toilets. This could be a Ritz among laundrettes. A laundrette as big as the Ritz. Oh, yes. last phrase, sexually stabilised, in Stuart Hall, provides a link to another vitally important area in which post-1960s filmmaking has arguably played an important part in opening up understanding of and sympathy for sexual minorities. Now, Beautiful Laundrette wasn't just about an interracial relationship, but about a gay one, and it would prove immensely successful with audiences seen in cinemas as well as on Channel 4 television, which had commissioned it. Isaac Julian's Young Soul Rebels, produced by the British Film Institute in 1991, would also show gay relationships among West Indians. A young couple, Chris and Kaz, run a pirate radio station from a tower block in Dalston in East London. And when their friend is murdered uh, while cruising for sex in the local park at night, this sets in motion, uh, a complex exploration of the realities of life for young gay black men. It was co-written by Paul Hallam, who, with Ron Peck, had written Nighthawks in 1978, another landmark film in the representation of gay relationships. Oh, oh, oh. 
Russell's Crap. And this is Kaz coming to you live on Soul Patrol. Premises. Mine. Where you saying? You're in here for murder. If that's what that tape sounds like, you've got to hand it over. So what of these independent films, seen by much smaller audiences than almost any Hollywood production, what have they got to do with canon formation or change? You may remember that I mentioned in the first of these lectures two reports commissioned by the British Film Institute and the UK Film Council. The first of these, Stories We Tell Ourselves, which was largely written by Bertrand Moulier and myself, looked at the issue of cultural impact basically how films might be shown to have influenced actual attitudes and behaviour. Could films be said, we asked, and, and could they be proved to have cultural impact? We argued that they could have, but over a long period of time, and essentially through appearing on different platforms and different media, the effect of a film is not immediate, it's cumulative. The films that I've mentioned here are all discussed in that report, where we argue that they've all contributed in different ways to long-term changes in cultural attitudes and perception. So do lists and pantheons matter? Peter Wallen thought that they did. When he was writing in 2002 about the controversies over who was and who was not an auteur, a term that has now become largely meaningless through its overuse, I would suggest, he said, and I quote, Looking back on those years, I can now see that auteurism was the last major and explicit attempt to rewrite the film canon. Rather than simply a theory of authorship, it involved the championing of a specific set of filmmakers. These were the auteurs, celebrated in critical articles and named in hierarchical order in the Cahiers du Cinema top 10 lists, in movie cinemas, histogram of British and American directors, and in Andrew Saris's Pantheon, which had two versions, with promotions and demotions, which I carefully studied. Lists seem trivial, 
but in fact they are crucial symptomatic indices of underlying struggles over taste, evaluation and the construction of a canon. And I can vouch for the truth of what Peter Wallen wrote then because, uh, like him, uh, I too had my copy of Andrew Saris and I would tick off films that I'd seen when I managed to see them. But I think what I've been sketching here points to a different kind of canonicity from that of the Ten Best list. Many of the films that I've mentioned, which are now, are now embedded in a variety of histories, if you set out to explore what lies behind new trends in the representation of diversity and minority experience, you'll discover these films pointed towards future needs and potential. If there are now less monolithic, to use Stuart Hall's term, portrayals of women and of ethnic and sexual minority experience across film and television, this is largely because of pioneering productions and events that tackled the monoliths. And I would add that we are now much more likely to see films produced in and representing more diverse regions and cultures than was the case back in the 1960s. Film, of course, has always had the potential to, to open windows on remote places and societies. That was part of its early appeal. And for instance, the documentaries of Robert Flaherty, uh, films like Nanook of the North, filmed in the Arctic, Moana in the South Seas, and Man of Arran, filmed on the Arran Islands off the coast of Ireland. To give you an example of this, here's part of a recent restoration of Robert Flaherty's Moana, using original sound recording to help bring this 1926 film forward into our image world. Our intention, of course, was to make an authentic record of this dying culture. That was our mission. I think 
arguably we're regaining something of that panoramic insight which the cinema of Flaherty's time uh, first offered. Although much of it comes through television, of course, rather than through cinema. So that a recent film like uh, Embrace of the Serpent, which transports us very wonderfully to the remoteness of the Colombian Amazon, is something of an exception. But a welcome one that recalls the primordial power of film to take us out of ourselves and to places that we will never visit in reality. None of what I've been describing means that canons are changing fast. All are going to disappear. Don't hold your breath for the 2022 sight and sound poll to announce dramatic shifts of attitude or evaluation. But do, as an alternative, look at the recent world poll by the Australian online journal Senses of Cinema, which offers lists of films and explanations which impressed over a hundred critics around the world, including myself. And you'll see just how much diversity has entered into this list-making. And do please join me for the last in this series of lectures, in which I'll be considering how much new ways that we consume film, mainly through streaming onto home-based devices, may be changing the sense of a filmic canon. <laughs>